What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Pro Athlete Academy podcast. It's your host, Kevin, and I am fired up for multiple reasons today, um, one of which dropping this podcast. Excited about it, as always. That's kind of a common theme that we say, and everyone says this is an exciting podcast. Uh, but this is another good one, but also recently have discovered Nitro Cold Brew. I know I'm late to the game. I know it's something that's been out for a while and that people who are big into coffee have been trying to get me to drink for a while now. Um, Big fan, huge fan, almost to the point where I'm probably going to end up drinking three or four of these things a day if I am able to go find a good home kit, right? A home brewing kit or whatever we make, we want to call it. But I found a couple. I'm a big fan of these things and this is now... The coffee of choice going forward so extremely excited about it kind of upset with myself that i did not get on this bandwagon earlier but regardless unbelievable if you haven't had it and you're a big coffee person go try it go to starbucks go wherever they have it i don't care who has it um and if dunkin donuts is listening i need to come back to you guys i need to stay loyal so get nitro cold brew and your boy's coming back now that we have the today's public service announcement on nitro cold brew out of the way let's talk about today's guest today's guest is jack mcnamara if you don't know the story about jack mcnamara for the last five years and his company true energy i suggest going to youtube go check out the website drinktrue.com find all the podcasts that he's been on before and listen and enjoy the story it is unbelievable the different types of things that he's done from going down to New York and couch surfing to get through accelerators or living out of a gym. And I believe he might currently still be in that gym um, and living there, running his company as well. Um, just unbelievable story. A lot of hard work and dedication to go in. And also he's a very entertaining guy with his advertisements and various other things that he's done. So if you are interested in his backstory and a little bit more, because we don't get into that all that much today, he shares a little bit with us with from sports, similar to what we do with other guests. But if you want to get into his business and his specific story on how he's come from starting all the way through and the trials and tribulations he's gone through, go check out those things. I'll link a couple in the show notes. Um, it's an unbelievable story, and just I just want to shout it out to share for everyone. But in this episode today, we dive a little bit deeper into the process of developing a beverage. Um, True Energy is a beverage shot. It's an energy shot, and he's got about four or five different lines, and he's going into cans now. But it's an energy shot for athletes to perform better. And the genesis of the idea was basically to get rid of the caffeine and the unhealthy energy drinks that we're drinking in the market today. So Jack saw an opportunity to then go into this market with a cleaner, healthier version of those energy drinks. Now, where we pick up our podcast is when he gets that idea, now what do you do next? How do you take the idea of, hey, I want to make a healthier drink and then actually go make it from coming up with the formula to finding a distributor to finding somebody to package it, to understanding the packaging, all of these things we dive into today. So if you're looking to get into the beverage industry and creating that new sports drink that's going to take over the world, this episode's for you. Or if you want to know which college hockey rink has the best hot dogs, we also cover that as well. 
Hope you guys enjoy. Here's my interview with Jack McNamara of True Energy. What was sports for you growing up and set the table up into kind of around where um, you were starting to entering that last year of you playing? So I uh, I grew up in a hockey-centric household. My, my dad played at BC and then the AHL, and then I have three brothers. Uh, went to Colgate with my older brother, two younger ones, played at Holy Cross. And after a couple of years, I, I kind of wanted to see what I could do in pro hockey. So I, I went and moved to Denmark, played in Denmark, Slovakia, Norway, and then I played in Sweden before college junior hockey. So I pretty much hung up the skates when I was 24, and the writing on, was on the wall about not making the NHL, that was for sure. So I, I jumped into software sales, and I lasted two weeks and three and a half days. Uh, and at that point, my mom was like, hey, Jack, it's time for you to get married, get a, get a job that you enjoy, and, and do all that, to which I said, hell no. And I moved to New York like two weeks later. And participate in a couple of accelerators to launch this business and five years later here we are and we, we have a line of natural lifestyle shots for every occasion and now we're going into camp so uh went from being a hockey player with the dream of winning the stanley cup and once that dream died and it ran its course which i am so grateful for uh it was time to enter the world of entrepreneurship which is uh whole different game but took a lot of what I learned from hockey and sports and helped me get to at least this point and we'll see where it goes from here when you were entering that last year right and you kind of just saying the writing was on the wall was there any thought into hey I know I in the background story of kind of you figured out you wanted to do more of like the energy drink while you were playing that last year um did you do anything to kind of prep yourself or was it really just, you know what, I'm going to enjoy the last year of hockey and then figure it out later? Uh, so I took a slightly different approach. So after two years at Colgate, I ended up taking classes at BC in the summer. A lot of the football players take classes in the summer so they, they can train. So uh, essentially at BC taking classes and just training for the following year. And I did that for, for three summers, but I always knew I was interested in starting a, a business and the genesis of why I started this business in particular is because every locker room from like peewee hockey through the pros, caffeine types of supplements were flooding the locker room. So it, it started with the Sobeys and then it went to the Red Bulls, the Rockstars, then five hour energy. And then in Europe guys were chugging coffee before games after 10 hour bus rides. So I'm like, okay, they're either diuretics, they're got a ton of crazy sugars or flavors. I was like, let's create something that's functional, yet you can feel good about consuming. And naively, I thought I was going to be like a, a billionaire overnight. And it's been an extremely long, arduous process. And the first step into entrepreneurship was actually when I was playing in Denmark. Uh, Copenhagen Business School had like a student incubator and you didn't actually need to be a student at CBS to participate. So I essentially just shot the guy an email and said, hey, I have this idea. Can I, can I join? And lo and behold, I meet with the guy. He's like, all right, sounds cool. And he kind of let me start working on the concept. So I guess my one word of advice for anyone starting is like, just reach out to someone who can help you get going. And don't be afraid to send a cold email or, or walk in and just talk to someone because 
at least in the world of entrepreneurship, people are very supportive. So that's like my one big piece of advice. How did that go? So you were in Denmark there. So how did that work when you got, that's awesome that they have that little incubator there and you're able to get in. How'd that go with kind of managing hockey and being able to do the work on the side? If I didn't play hockey, I would have been able to take full advantage of it. So unfortunately I would have to take like a 30 minute bus and, and go and actually be surrounded by other entrepreneurs. So more than anything, I really had this one guy who ran the program who I could lean on for ideas. And I had to follow a specific structure to present the idea at the end of the proof of idea concept. Uh, so it's like three stages. I think it was proof of idea, then it was proof of concept, and then it was like building the business. So I spent probably a month on the proof of idea and then did the proof of concept. And I was essentially doing it all on my own. Um, and this guy was my first like real advisor. Uh, so I think he led the program for, for a while. My one regret is not going in there more and talking to entrepreneurs because fast forward to New York, that was probably the greatest benefit of those accelerators is talking to people who are going through similar problems as you are. Um, I think that's the greatest benefit of incubators at the end of the day. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it's sweet. That you, I mean, even if you're just having the awareness to shoot that email, finding that time and having that self-awareness is huge. Yeah, I would agree with that a, a thousand percent. When you're playing college hockey, I mean, I viewed college hockey as a full-time job, meaning you have to take a full course load and then you have to train and then you have to be gone on the weekend, missing classes on Fridays and things like that. So I found it very tough to, to balance that and try to get good grades and then also try to do something on the side. But the interesting thing about pro hockey is now you no longer have to do the classes and it's either fill that time with like reading a book or reading the Wall Street Journal or playing video games and Maybe there's a place for all of those things, but uh, I just wanted to find a way to kind of push the eventual future forward because I, I knew I wasn't going to go to the NHL at that point or even get paid more than like a minimum wage to play pro hockey. So, uh, and then you start to actually enjoy it, which is the other piece, like finding some industry that you enjoy, maybe not as much as hockey, but, but close. That's when it got fun. Yeah, absolutely. And you just find that little, and you, it's like the things that you didn't think that you'd be interested in. Right. And then you jump into it and then it turns into a, your, your new form of like a game and competition. It's just one big game. Like there's a set of rules and things that everyone operates in. And if you just figure it out how to do it and then you just create your own brand and do it better. It's essentially. I mean, that's the other thing. Like when I joined software sales brand, apparently I couldn't hack it it's so competitive in there. And if you can figure out what makes certain people click or tick, that's when you start being super successful. And I think that's the reason why a lot of these companies are hiring former athletes because we just do not like to lose it regardless of what it is. Yeah. And software sales, you're just full of X. It's like pretty much like hockey East and Northeast guys all over the place. <laughs> Yes, because we're a bunch of just animals who will do anything for a sale. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> so, and I think, and and the, I mean, your your vision and your purpose to jump in there was right on. You're saying how these caffeinated drinks used to pop right in. I remember we used to have like the um, the Red Bull marketers would come around, and we knew most of them because we went to school with them, and we did state be having cases of Red Bull in our room, 
and I think I when I when I did play, I had I think three Red Bulls a game, right? Oh, so I would, yeah, I would just because I mean sitting on the bench is a lot of work. So I agree with you. You have to keep the you have to keep the legs fresh, but it would be literally because it it was like the whole and we don't want to get down this rabbit hole, but it would shoot you up, right? And then by the end of the period, I'd be done. Like I'd be down on that crash, and I'd have to get another one to keep me up, right? So, um, yeah, it's just wild. And I know some of the other guys, like, with the coffee. And then when you get over to Europe, that's a different world. Oh, yeah. Well, you say you drink the Red Bulls to, to play in the game. I'd be drinking them to be doing the stat line sitting in the stand. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, I'm right there with you. I think I was listening to you on the uh, – what was it, Next Shift, where you were talking about how you can travel to all the rinks to, to taste all the hot dogs. <laughs> yeah it's, i was uh, pumped my favorite thing was we we're going to merrimack and i can go across the street the fuddruckers oh man clarkson's still the best one Is they it? have so many, so many options in that hockey rink they did it right <laughs> <laughs> unreal so you so one of the biggest hurdles and the thing that we want to drive into today is just the like you have this idea and we can and i mean there's a ton of stuff out there and if if you haven't if you listen to it and you haven't seen the full story as to how you went through things, your ads. I mean, there's a ton of stuff out there that's unbelievable stuff on how the story on how you're doing what you're doing. Um, so I don't want to kind of beat the dead horse that's already there. Like, go check all that stuff out to get the inspiration to go. But what I want to jump into today is um, how we actually. You have the concept, you have this idea, you have this dream. How you actually got a drink, right? Because there's a lot of ideas and how you develop and get to the point where, all right, I'm going to use these ingredients. I'm going to do this amount of it. I want to get this type of flavor, this color, those things. So dive into that a little bit. And where we want to start is pretty much where everyone's going to be at one point. So you have an idea, probably don't have much money and you're thinking, all right, how the hell do I get this thing done? So kind of what was your first step to actually having the idea to start developing that first phase of the product? Well, for starters, I, I, I can't explain how to get to the amazing product. We're still in process of doing that, but I can tell you about 10,000 things not to do. Um, for starters, the original idea was called Kickstick, and it was a kick and a stick, and it was in the liquor industry. So most people don't know that. We were trying to innovate on the mini liquor bottles, trying to create a, a cool package design that people would grab and go and be able to shoot and the novelty of it was kind of unique and that's where we started. Uh, the first thing I did was I was like, okay, how do we design this unique package design? Uh, I reached out to a bunch of companies in China and chose the cheapest one. Lo and behold, the first prototype I got was extremely crappy, uh, like borderline. It was leaking. The screws didn't work. And I didn't even know if it was food quality. Uh, I didn't ask any of the right questions. And I burnt literally my life savings on this one. And it was close to $10,000. So uh, starting a business is tough, but it's even harder when you start a business and blow all your money on that one manufacturing run. Uh, so the one thing I'd like to start with is if you're going to jump in, jump in with the idea of learning as much as humanly possible. And I think a lot of hockey players that maybe played at a high level go into the business world extremely naive, thinking like, I'm going to be the best at whatever I do. 
when I did software sales, I was not the best and it was frustrating and I felt low man on the totem pole all over again, like I'm playing squirt hockey. And then when I switched to beverages, it was like, okay, let's just move as quickly as possible and, and make mistakes, but try to limit the amount you have to spend on those mistakes. Um, so step one of creating beverage, I would say reach out to people in your network who have successfully done it before. And I would say anyone that's listening to this podcast knows someone from the beverage space, someone from the bar space, someone from the website development space, if that's the business they want to start and ask them how they got going. So many people are too afraid of asking for advice that they end up making massive, uh, expensive mistakes. Um, so as soon as that mistake happened, I started asking the right questions and then we kind of went into manufacturing correctly. Uh, I know that probably doesn't answer your question, but that really was my first move and it was a massive first mistake. Yeah. So when you're looking at manufacturing and two questions out of that, right? So one is if somebody is getting into it and say, it's, you want to find someone who's like, like, right? So say you're an ex hockey guy or you're, you're a football player, sport, you're a basketball, and you don't know somebody directly. Um, how would you say if like an ex hockey guy wanted to reach out to say someone like you who's been doing it for five years, right? You still, you have still a mountain you're climbing, but you're five years ahead of someone starting. How do you think would be a proper way for someone to come to you? Would it be a cold email or something over Instagram similar to what we did? Or is it more of, hey, I need to bring you value? Uh, I don't I don't think, I mean, everyone's different. But for me, the journey that I've been on, people have always been extremely kind and open to giving me 15 minutes. And I would say 90% of the time, these guys said, I don't want anything in return, but I, I want you to pay it forward. Like, no joke, that's what probably 90% of them said. So now if someone reaches out to me, whether it's via Instagram or email or LinkedIn, as long as that email is personalized, I will probably respond 99% of the time. If someone sends me a cookie cutter email, it doesn't even say my name on it, like I'm not going to respond because like I have, uh, I have to prove the investors right and I can't waste time. But if someone goes about it asking in the right way and obviously cares and knows a little bit about me, then I'm, I'm going to answer it. Yeah, that's huge. And that's a big hurdle too. And I was talking to another guy yesterday on the show and this came up. And the reason why I asked you is a lot of stuff that you hear, especially if you listen to real estate investing and all this stuff, it's like, make sure you, if you're reaching out to someone, have something to give them. And the nature of the business is, is if you're just starting, you're not going to have shit. Like you're not going to have anything to give. It's really just, Hey, do me a solid. I'll pay it forward. And then if we cross paths again down the line, I'll get you back again. It's kind of like pay it back and kind of an IOU. So I, I just want people, if you're listening and you're kind of in that space, you want to reach out to somebody, just fire it away. Make sure the email's nice and actually you, you can actually spell and have periods in the right spot. So your grammar is good. Um, but don't hesitate because you just don't, you can't bring value or you're not going to solve a problem for them because those people are in the same spot. Most of them want to pay it forward. So um, when you talk in manufacturing, so getting back into that, what were some of the questions that I guess if you can give a couple of examples of what maybe the right questions should be for somebody to be kind of asking right away? So once I made that massive mistake, that's when I was like, okay, maybe I should reach out to advice and see what the proper way to do this is. 
and we were going at it backwards. Like normally you're supposed to come up with a formula. You're supposed to prototype that formula, uh, test it 20,000 different times until you arrive at the one you think works. Then you use a focus group uh, and then further and further down the road. So what, what I did after hearing that is I said, okay, I'm going to pretend I'm a professional hockey player again. What do I want in the formula? And I, I wrote it down and I reached out to the former Red Sox dietitian, cold email, just explained like, hey, blah, blah, blah. I'm doing this. I'm an entrepreneur, former hockey player. I read something about your dietitian background and what you've accomplished, blah, blah, just to show that like I actually did the research on her and not sent 100 emails to 100 dietitians. She immediately got back and was like, hey, come by and we'll talk it through. Uh, long story short, I ended up meeting with her three times. She never charged me a dime and she was extremely helpful. And the one thing she said to me, and I'd say anyone entering the supplement or nutrition space should do this. She said, look at the top selling brands, do a cross analysis of all those products. And then she gave me a handful of products that she said, these are the high end products that maybe don't have the marketing to back it up. But these are the right products. And again, cross analysis of all of the brands, what ingredients they had, what had benefits, what had side effects, and what were the proper values, not only the marketed values, but the research-backed values. And I am not a scientist. I did not do well in science, but when you look at things logically, anyone can essentially do it. Um, so then I went back to her and showed her the values, and, and we talked through it numerous times, and then we arrived at a formula. The next step was hiring a formulation specialist. If you're making lemonade, you can do it in your kitchen. Uh, if you're making a bar, maybe you do it in a commercial kitchen. But if you're doing a supplement like us, you need to find someone who can actually put these extracts together. Um, so I reached out to probably five different companies. A lot of them were like $15,000 a skew. And remember, I just burnt all my money. So I had to find someone who was like willing to work with me. And we found this woman, Sydney Whitmoyer, Parkside Beverage, and we paid her on an hourly basis and we just kept going back and forth. And uh, I gave her this formula. She's like, this is going to taste like garbage. I go, I don't care. We want the best healthy product there is. And I got it, tried it. It tasted like tree bark, sent it to a bunch of former pro hockey players, athletes, and said like, hey, what do you guys think about this? And I'd say 90% of them said, this is dog shit. Uh, the only way I would drink this is if this truly made me bigger, faster, taller, stronger. And they said all the kids we train play Xbox all day long. They need it to taste like rainbows type of thing. Uh, so that was another realization for me. So that's kind of the, the formulation process. And then when you go to the next step, it's finding the balance between great taste and great functionality. So you essentially, what you did was, is you took, that you wanted to get a healthier product. So instead of looking at what Red Bull and all those had, you looked into, say, the top selling brands across the board from a nutritional standpoint, and essentially pulled out to get to your formula, picked and pulled which ingredients you wanted to use that were based off of whatever value you came up with? Exactly. We would, we would look at the Red Bulls and the Monsters but then we would also look at the organic products that maybe aren't doing a billion dollars in sales, yep. but it had the right ingredients. So it was like, why did they use this and why did they use that? And 
a perfect example is like a lot of the energy drink brands use sucralose, they use preservatives, and all of those things have a benefit or a reason, meaning the preservatives make your shelf life longer. Uh, the sucralose makes your beverage taste unbelievable. The downside is they're not healthy. So it's like, where can you find alternatives that, that work? Um, and some of that has to do with the manufacturing process. Uh, some of it has to do with finding an ingredient that maybe isn't as bad for you as uh, some of the ingredients that they use. And, and it's kind of a, just go through the process and, and do the research and you, you arrive at ingredients that are pretty cool and, and work well and standard ingredients that also do the job. So you did this work and you, you come up with, so you have that first debacle with the manufacturing because you're just trying to get something. And you work through the dietitian and you come up with some type of formula. Did you just go to the, the lady who's going to do the formula for you with just a list and say, hey, this is what I want you to do? And she had the ingredients or did you have to get the ingredients? Uh, all the flavor houses, for the most part, have basic ingredients. And then anything crazy you have to go and find. She had everything because our original formula is mostly green tea natural caffeine and vitamins and all of those things are pretty standard ingredients what made it difficult for us was we were trying to avoid preservatives we were trying to avoid artificial sweeteners and i don't know the numbers off the top of my head but like some of the artificial sweeteners are like a thousand times sweeter than like sugar and that's really hard to compete with so it's finding a palatable beverage that uh, an athlete would drink and know that they're not going to feel kind of shitty afterwards um, but it was a quick realization that I, I, I realized that a product that works extremely well, if it doesn't taste good, that's still the golden rule in beverage. Like how often are you or I, even as athletes going to drink something that, that literally tastes terrible? Um, yeah. we're probably going to make some sacrifice to have something we enjoy. Yeah. You're not, not anymore at least, right? When they first started coming out, like remember power bars, oh, those brutal. tasted awful, but yeah. you would they're the only one out there or the original protein drinks tasted like crap, but that's all you had. Now it's like, Hey, you want to have peanut butter chocolate done? Like if you, I mean, they that's have so every, everything. It's wild. So nowadays the taste, we're all spoiled. It's pretty much what it comes down to. Yeah. It's like I, sure. back in the day when I walked up two flight, two, two mountains to get to school, right. Uphill both ways. Getting old now. I'm a dad. Uh, yeah. Controls. <laughs> so, yeah, so you have the formula, right? So you have these things and then as you're working through, so now you're at a spot where you kind of have the ingredients that you think you want to play with from a health perspective. Now is, did you find out and before, like you now we're going to go into probably trying to balance flavor and everything else. Are there anything that's in say all these drinks that absolutely need to be there? Like even if you're making the most organic drink possible and you want to go and you want to make the like you're not trying to hit a niche, right? You might be able to find a group of people that just want to drink green tea and vitamins and that's it. And don't care about taste, but you want to bring this across. So is there anything in there that you wanted to get out because it maybe it wasn't as good, but you kind of couldn't? The hard one was preservatives. So if you think about it, most of the products on a on a shelf of a star market or a standard grocery store, a lot of those products do have preservatives. And the basic reason for that is processing is is very inexpensive to just throw a preservative in there. Um, if you don't put them in there, your shelf life is going to be much shorter. 
And as a startup or even just big businesses in general, you want to be able to hold on to that inventory for as long as possible, which is why like fresh pressed juices and things like that that have a two week shelf life, those got to be moving at extraordinary velocities in grocery stores. Otherwise, they're literally just throwing it away. Um, so trying to get rid of those was almost impossible in the early days. So our first manufacturing run actually had preservatives. Um, but the longer you stay in the game, the more you find tricks to the trade and, and you just look, become more knowledgeable of manufacturing that you can find ways to avoid it. And ways to avoid it are going hot fill versus cold fill. Um, so when you manufacture, not to get ahead of ourselves, but when you manufacture a beverage, there's basically three major ways that you can do it. Um, cold fill is when they literally just fill the beverage with cold water, your blend, your flavors. And because of that, it's easy for microbials and bacteria to enter the beverage and wreak havoc. Uh, water doesn't have that problem because it's just water what grows in there. But when you start adding vitamins and flavors, like all of these things, when they interact with each other, interact with the air, it can create problems. So most cold fill products have preservatives. Hot fill is when you literally fill the beverage at 180 degrees that temperature kills all the bacteria, you seal it and you're good to go. That's the process we switch to. And then a third process is called aseptic processing. We've never done that because you have to have like 100,000 unit minimum run quantities. And that's when they process your beverage in like a super sterile facility and, and like no bacteria can even find its way in. And that one's very difficult to achieve and very difficult for startups to, to kind of use. Um, and then instead of hot filling for eight hours, you can also do tunnel pasteurization where you essentially put your beverage and make it 180 degrees for 10 minutes or something and then it kills everything there. So those were little things that I had no idea even existed. I That's thought manufacturing a beverage was the same way. Yeah, it's like you mix it up in a pot and pour it into a bottle, seal it and see, let's see you later, right? Yeah, not to sound crazy, but that's pretty much what I thought they did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. Right? You, I mean, you're not sitting there trying to create things. And as, I mean, if you think about it, right, you sit there and you make a smoothie in your, in your kitchen, right? You, you don't really yeah. think about that, hey, if I want to store this for any longer than probably two days, bacteria and crap can get into it, right? And they start exactly. to do whatever it is. Like, you wouldn't think of that. I think that's... That's cool. So you would do these, these are things that are done right before it gets in the bottle. So essentially the bacteria can get, or whatever gets in, this sterilizes it right when it, before it gets in the bottle. Is that kind of, so you make your formula and then you go through this process before you package. Exactly. So they'll actually fill the bottle at 180 degrees. So the other thing I didn't know is that if you just use a standard plastic bottle and fill it at 180 degrees, <laughs> it'll like, it'll like melt the bottle. So if you look at, and this is crazy, like if you look at Gatorade, for example, and it has those little vents on the side, like it's not just a cylindrical bottle. It has like these weird shapes around it. Uh, body armor, same sort of thing. Like when you see those, those are actually structurally made so that you can fill those bottles at 180 degrees and they'll expand and come back to its normal shape. But if you throw like a Poland Springs bottle in there and try to do it, it'll screw the whole thing up aggressively. So we were playing around with different plastics you can use. PET is normal. PP is a different type of plastic that can withstand higher 
uh, temperatures and you can use like a, a special PET design. So as you can imagine, a pro hockey player trying to learn all this stuff, it's probably the reason why it's taken me five years to get to this point. Um, but now we understand the process. We understand the options, which is why educating yourself on all this stuff before making financial decisions can save you literally a million dollars. So how did you, and with that, we'll get back to kind of the chronological in a second, but when you're trying to figure this out, right? How did you just feel it, figure it out by trial and error? Like, Hey, I, I'm at the manufacturing process. I'm going to find a manufacturer and they're doing cold fill. So, Hey, let's let it ride. And then two years later, you figure out what's this hot fill thing and then you see it. Or were you reading books and doing it more of a yourself or is it on the fly? Uh, it was both. So I was familiar with hot fill. I was familiar with cold fill aseptic, but I'm also entering an industry where I don't know anyone. So when I'm sending like part of the battle is actually finding someone to manufacture your product. So let's say in my brain, I have the perfect design. Okay. You need to go find someone to make that bottle design. I have the perfect process. You have to find a manufacturer to handle that process. And then you have to marry the two for us. We were like, okay, we're using a unique bottle design. Manufacturers do not like to use unique bottle designs because it requires new tooling on their lines. Like, Manufacturers are extraordinarily good at keeping it simple and scaling businesses within a, a set line. Like a canning manufacturer does a specific can and they do it extraordinarily well. As soon as you make one custom adjustment, they're like, screw you, man. Like we don't have time for your 10,000 unit run. Um, so really what it came down to is we found one manufacturer in the entire country who would run our product and it happened to be cold fill. So we ran with it what would be a big run that you'd be able to do from a unit perspective? So 10,000, obviously I don't think is big, but what's like a standard run that a manufacturer would be looking to do? Uh, so we're entering the canning world. The runs that we're looking at right now for an eight hour shift are probably like 20 to 40,000 cans for eight hours. Okay. Um, but it really depends on what facility you're using. Cause the, the scale is all over the place. You could be working with, uh, a local guy who runs like IPA beers, or you could be working with Pepsi or Polar beverages in Worcester. Um, and those guys can just fly. But so you're it's actually, still. So you, you'd be working and you just, with some of these big companies like Pepsi and those, they actually have manufacturing that they'll do for others? Uh, manufacturing with Pepsi, not really, but some of the other guys, they, they would do it. Like Polar does manufacture products for other companies. Yeah. Um, and then there's a lot of smaller manufacturers that are called contract manufacturers. They literally only do that and don't really sell their own products. So the first group we worked with based out of Chicago, like they didn't own a brand. They are just like a hired gun facility to manufacture products for people. And if you don't walk in and talk the talk or walk the walk, they'll be able to read through the lines and just say no, because it's not worth their time. Uh, so for me, I had enough no's that I realized that the things I needed to answer. And in that email, I concocted it in a way to pretend like I knew what I was doing. And quite frankly, I, I lied about what our ability was in terms of scale. Like, yeah, we'll be doing a million units with you guys come like next fall, which was maybe not even a white lie. It was a straight up lie, but we got them to run it. And that kind of got the ball rolling and we made a ton of mistakes, but 
at the end of the day, you kind of have to eventually jump in and see how it works and see what customers think. But the other big thing is asking random people for their opinion because friends, family, they're going to give you the sugar-coated version. And by doing that, it makes building your company a lot more difficult because you don't have the raw facts. That makes sense. And the big, like having the, being able to talk to talk and it seems like, cause if you go in and you talk to these manufacturers and even if they like just using the example you used, if they're asking like how you want to, like what process you want to use out of those three and you have no idea what it is, like, like you said, they can't waste time on that. So understanding, I know you can get away with it a little bit more in different industries, right? Of not knowing and talking to talk when it's more personable, but a lot of operations, it's do this, do this one through 10 and they don't move out of that one through 10 unless you're going to do something that is going to be worth their time. So understanding that knowledge is huge. For sure. It'd be like the equivalent of someone walking into a hockey locker room and mixing up like center versus midi and asking yeah. to be on the <laughs> Like, it's just not going to happen. And these guys can read through it. And the beverage industry is infamous for having acronyms for everything. So yeah. I didn't even know what CPG meant. Uh, and I was in an accelerator. So it was like, I, I lied enough to, to get in there, but it just means consumer packaged goods. And I like literally didn't even know that. So uh, there was a lot to learn, but eventually you get comfortable and, and eventually you, you learn to talk that talk. And uh, one of the other big things I learned on the manufacturing side is I was talking to someone in China and she said, like, there's no such thing as a lowest price. It is the price at which that price changes the quality to a, to a point where you're not comfortable with it. Meaning like, can you get below 10 cents a bottle? Yes. But is that quality, the quality you want? Probably not. That's good. And I, we, this comes up a few times. It's like you get so zero focused in on, okay, like money becomes a thing, right? Because now it's like, all right, I need to, I don't have a lot of it. It's, I run out of it quickly and I want to have the, like, I want to spend 10 cents on a bottle, but versus 10 cents versus, Hey, I'm going to spend 20, but that 20 cents is going to give me everything I need and not cause me a, a million dollar headache down the road. Like let's spend that extra 10 cents. They don't only like the price can be very deceiving. And it's like, if you go shop and you buy the first line of Bauer skates for like 10 bucks, cool. They're going to break tomorrow, go out and buy the thousand dollar skates and they're going to last you a lifetime. The same, we run through this process constantly as the, as the company grows. It's like, we had the same issue today in terms of labels. Like we could save 10 cents by going with a less expensive label. And we were kind of discussing, well, maybe it looks like a craft beer or something. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not our brand. So we went with the more expensive option. And, uh, our demographic is like Lululemon, Cycle type of group. Are we going to go with a plastic PET bottle going into like 2021? Or do we go aluminum and again, pay more money? And we continue to decide like, hey, I think it might be worth to spend a few extra cents to do it right. And maybe you even have to charge more for it, but certain customer demographics, they demand it and we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot by making it inexpensive to manufacture. And you that's pay for quality. Yeah. And that's huge understanding your market there. So if you understand that you want to hit the affluent market of 
people who are spending at Lululemon and SoulCycle, like that's where you want to be. You need to be that type. You need to look everything about it and it's going to cost you. But also the flip side of that is those people are going to pay that higher premium that maybe your margins are a little bit bigger and it's going to pay off in the long run. Like you don't have to sell a million just to make your money back. You might be able to sell 500,000 to make more money than if you were going after say people um, at target, not target, like going yeah, to yeah. target, but just saying. <laughs> no, I mean, there's, there's like products out there. Kombucha is a perfect example. It's like yep. eight bucks for 12 ounces of liquid and who knows, maybe it costs them 10 cents to manufacture, but I do like the bet that. Yeah, if they're doing it the right way, maybe they are spending three bucks a, a glass. I don't know. But that's the other piece about the beverage world is half the battle is creating a great quality product. The other half is telling that story and spending the money to market it appropriately, which is why companies like Monster and Red Bull have been so dominant for so long, despite having generally less healthy products. But they're marketing and content machines so and like go backpen a little bit so we we went down the manufacturing piece and go into the formula one thing that i wanted to um continue on because now you're trying to figure out like balances between the taste and the actual effectiveness right so you want the healthy and the effectiveness of everything and then now you want taste so how to talk a little bit about how you guys went down that route of balancing those two so we would have kind of formulations coming in every week or two and I'd immediately give it all like all my brothers to, I said, don't share it with friends and family, but I would say that they're almost brutally honest to a mean degree. Uh, so they were giving me the, the honest feedback, which was helpful. And then eventually we actually, we ran real focus groups. So Bentley university runs a, a marketing program and they select one company a year to work on all semester long. Uh, so that's another example of finding like a cost cut effective way of getting help. A lot of universities are looking to give their students an opportunity to see a startup, the goods, the bads, the highs, the lows, and we didn't pay anything for it. So we essentially had a hundred college students working on a marketing plan for us. And then we got two focus groups for like a thousand bucks of teachers and students and video of them trying the product. And we did a, it was a focus group between us, Five Hour Energy, which does about a billion dollars a year. And then the next two best players were Stacker 2 and Tweaker, which do about 30 million and 15 million. So Five Hour Energy owns like 94% of the market. Um, it was then we realized where we stacked up, where we should make adjustments. And we made those adjustments and then got rid of preservatives. So uh, it's taking advice, having thick skin, uh, certain things take it with a grain of salt, other things take it very seriously and be willing to make the adjustments. The best example of that is our original design was the idea for the liquor industry for a package design. We literally have nothing from that original design that will be a part of this new refresh. So, so many entrepreneurs think I have the world changing billion dollar idea, but the fact of the matter is most of the entrepreneurs I've talked to that have been successful, their original concept is light years away from their actual finished product. So people have to be less afraid of entering the world with their idea because whether it's good or bad, it's probably going to be different again. Yeah, it's just pivoting every chance you get, right? It's the same thing if we want to relate back to the athletes in sports, right? Your, your game's not the same as when you were a squirt. 
or when you were a PUE or even from when the first year that you played college to your senior year, you're going to figure out what works. Like, right. Everyone starts from skating the same way, shooting, stick handling, everything. And eventually everyone skates differently. Everyone shoots differently. So working through those iterations and taking the feedback, you wouldn't have gotten to the place you got in hockey or in sports without taking that coaching and adjusting it. And it's the same thing you carry over to business. 100%. So is there anything from a taste or a formula standpoint that's like standard? Is there like standard ratios or anything that's across the board? So for us, we tried to arrive at what we would consider the perfect formula from a science perspective. And then we backtrack to make it taste as palatable, if not great tasting as possible without losing the efficacy. So obviously I would like to create a beverage that has zero sweetener, but who's going to drink an energy drink that has no sweetener and tastes like Flintstone vitamins, like maybe 0.001% of the It's not water. It needs sweetener. So that's, that's a good point. If it's not water, it needs sweetener. So it's finding that right balance. And, And the more, effective ingredients that you put in there that are oftentimes extremely bitter you're going to need to find something to counteract that best case scenario you find something else that's effective to counteract it um and there there are certain ingredients that that taste much better than others but uh for us it was finding a process method to avoid preservatives and then on the sweetener side it was finding the most healthy sweeteners to work with uh, without hurting our claims and without hurting effectiveness. So in my opinion, the, the sweeteners to avoid are like aspartame, sucralose, uh, and there's probably 10, 10 of those to avoid. We looked at products that are natural and, and kind of maintain that low caloric, low carbs, low sugars, and buy was the best example of that in my opinion. Buy sold for, I think, $1.7 billion, and they used a sweetener system of erythritol, stevia, and monk fruit, and they still had like 10 calories, probably one to three grams of sugar, and low carbs. So we took that sweetener system, stole it, and put it into our product so that we could still be kind of natural. We could still have a product that tasted great, and we could have a label that people read and were comfortable drinking. So I, I do stand by our formula a thousand percent, but you do have to give a little. And then I'm sure that even over time, as new formulas and new ingredients come out, you'll adjust as things get better, right? It's like, like we were talking about before with when the original power bars or the original drinks came out that you were giving up a lot of flavor for to actually just have the product. There's nothing those people could have done, right? The other things didn't exist. Ingredients weren't found. They weren't made. So you work with what you have now. And then eventually, you never know, next year, a sweetener can come out or, or a new ingredients discovered on earth that solves your problems. And hey, we make an adjustment and goes back to what you said before. You, you got to work with what you have. If you're too stubborn, you'll never get off the ground. Exactly. And like I said, people care about a product that tastes great. There's a reason why fast food's been around. Like people love convenience. They love great tasting stuff. If you can make it healthy on top of it, that's when you have a winner. And you're competing against companies that have probably... 10 people in their formulation in-house teams and you just got to find ways to, to make it work. And that's probably why it's been such a long process for us and why it probably takes us a year to launch a product versus maybe a week for someone else. You're trying to look for ingredients. 
is there anywhere that you can go that is standard besides just looking at ingredient labels and researching? Like essentially when you say, all right, don't use these, use these. When you discovered that, was it just talking to people and doing the research or was there somewhere that you guys know that there's like a database of where to go for ingredients? So originally when we sourced ingredients, we were sourcing individually from different companies. So as an example, if you have a, a product with 10 different ingredients, we were basically just sourcing from 10 different places. Uh, eventually you realize that you can work with kind of blend companies. DSM Portatex is a big one, but they like to work with, with major brands. Eventually we were talking to them and they're like, your lead time's gonna be 20 weeks, which is not okay for us. So we were celebrating on the walls. So we found another group called Vita Blend and they essentially take all the things I need and they source on our behalf. So as an entrepreneur getting out there, you pretty much do everything on your own. But as you get more credibility and meet more people, you realize that there's a web of people that can kind of help you do specific tasks. And that's what we started to do. So uh, eventually the goal is to move into a turnkey solution. And a turnkey contract manufacturer essentially takes your formula. They source the ingredients. They manufacture the product. They warehouse the product. They fulfill the product. And then they even distribute the product. So we're not there yet on the can side, but on the shot side, we're, we're starting to, to get there. And the goal is to keep your overhead as low as possible. So if you're doing that, it makes just things so much more manageable as opposed to having 10 people deal with it. When you get to a finished formula, what does that formula look like? like what does a finished formula look like? Does it look like 50, 50 grams of green tea, then two grams of this, three grams of that? Or is it, hey, I just want to use green tea, stevia, and blah? Uh, so what I would send to them is I'd be like, Hey, I want this, this, and this at this amount per can or per shot. And then they'd ask me like, how, how big is your run? So I talked to the manufacturer and I'm like, Hey, what is an efficient run for you guys? So I'm not paying for line time and nothing's happening. So the goal is to be as efficient as possible. So if they say, okay, we can do 20,000 cans in an eight hour shift. I go back to the formulator, give them my one bottle nutrition label. And then they spit out a master formula for 20,000 cans. And on that master formula, it'd be like erythritol, 100 pounds, stevia, 50 kilos, uh, natural flavor of strawberry, three kilos. And it's literally like a blend sheet of what you hand to the contract manufacturer. They follow it word for word, what temperature it needs to be processed at. They put it in these giant vat containers and then they heat it up, run it through its lines, fill up like six cans or six shots at a time. Those cans move down the line and get sealed and then get packed out into boxes. So shots and cans are a little bit different, but for the most part, the process is, stays the same. So essentially what you're giving is you want to come up with a formula for one, like it's like following a recipe. You're coming up with a recipe for one serving, right? So for your one yeah. shot. And then you work with everybody's on the line. Then you go down and say, all right, now I'm going to make this for 40,000 units. You go back to the professional who knows what they're doing. So you don't screw it up. And they come up with, all right, you need X amount of whatever for everything. You hand that over, they put into a big vat and then all of that mixes up. And when it goes into that single package, it's originally what your original formula was. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Cool. 
that's a lot. I mean, it's like a lot of work in a sense. And I think that helps too. Cause when you think about it and you, and like what I would, I would think about if I was making a beverage right now, like you told me to go do it. It's like, how the hell am I going to make a thousand, like hundred thousand of these? And I would try to be making a formula based off of the end product and not just fo- like, if you bring it down to that original product of one, that helps a ton. Exactly. So you jumped into a position in a, in an industry that had, and we've said it a bunch of times that had a lot of big players. So when you decided to do this, what kind of gave you the confidence I'll say to be able to kind of, Hey, I'm going to jump in the ring and go into this industry where I'm going to eventually down the line, be able to take on some big guys. The biggest reason I I had the confidence was essentially because I had done the software software sales thing. Absolutely hated it. And it was then that I realized like, if I'm going to be bad at something I hate, I might as well give it a shot and be bad at something I love. So it was like, there was no fear right out of the gates. It's like, let's just give this a fair shake. Uh, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have any real worries in the world, thankfully. Um, What's the worst that could truly happen? Other than having an amazing experience of highs and lows, just like sports, and hopefully have the potential to sell it for a million dollars or whatever it may be. It's like, you have to look forward to the journey. And if you look forward to the journey, there's not a whole lot of regret that you can have. Um, looking back, yeah, there's certain parts of that journey that, that sucked about getting paid $9 an hour to work at Equinox or eating dollar slices in New York and sleeping on like couches and in Harlem with no air conditioning. Like those types of things in the moment kind of sucked. But now I look back and kind of say that was a pretty damn cool experience. Um, I would say being naive also kind of helped to a degree is like, I'm a hopeless optimist. So I, I always viewed it as like, okay, we're going to be successful. Not, are we going to be successful and are we successful? No, but maybe someday we will be. Um, and then the last thing is like sports. Like we all start hockey as an example. We play my hockey, we play peewee hockey. And, uh, like you said before, like, are we going to be playing the NHL at 12 years old? No, but if we have the right mindset and we continue to train intelligently every day and listen to the right coaches and uh, have the right teammates, like you're bound to reach the next level, like peewees. Then you're playing midget hockey and high school hockey. And then hopefully you can play juniors and then college. But I always viewed life business and sports in the same realm. Like if you just wake up and do the right things that you're supposed to do to push that agenda forward, you're bound to be successful. Uh, people that are ripped probably work out every morning. People that are going to Harvard probably do their homework every night. Like it, it's, I think the, uh, the formula is pretty simple at the end of the day. I do think luck plays a massive role. I think uh, your upbringing plays a massive role in terms of the connections you may have. Some of us have an advantage, some of us have a disadvantage, but uh, it's also a sliding scale. Like I, I think everyone can be successful. It's just a matter of how far they can go. And I've been down in the dirt in the dumps 10,000 times, but I'd like to think I've been up 11,000. So it's like, it pays off. I don't know if that answers the question, but I just think like having a positive outlook on life and grinding it out, you're eventually going to make it somewhere. Thanks everybody for listening. If you're interested more in following Jack's story, 
the products that True Energy is coming out with, or you just want to grab some sweet gear, go over to drinktrue.com. All the information is there, or follow them on Instagram at drinktrue. Thanks as usual for the support and listening to the podcast. As usual, share, like, comment, review, subscribe, all the stuff to help this podcast grow. I appreciate your support, and I'm grateful for the time that you're giving me to listen, and I will talk to you all next week. Have a good one.